You know, the weight of Christianity rises and falls on the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The weight of our entire faith. It's not about how old is the earth and what about the dinosaurs and can we find Noah's Ark and did a guy really live 969 human years or dog years? It's not about that, is it? Everything rises and falls on an event. And we are here this morning to celebrate an incredible event. And I used to think that if I could convince someone of the facts of the resurrection, that that they would automatically then surrender and fall uh, in love with Jesus. And I've got a very good friend of mine. We've been friends for years. and He's gone from an atheist to an agnostic to just three years ago in his kitchen. He finally said, you know what? I, I do believe. I do think that Jesus probably rose from the dead. And I said, well, do you want to become a Christian? He said, no. I said, really? I said, help me with this. He said, I think he did. I just don't want to change my lifestyle. And so maybe this morning, that's you. You think it happened, but you're still not quite ready to change your lifestyle. Man, we're glad you're here. Maybe I can say something today to help you, to encourage you with that. That's my goal this morning. Or maybe you do believe, uh, but your journey has been tumultuous because there's been a lot of church drama. A lot of Christians are a little sketchy. You've worked with them or they're in your family. And quite frankly, you're not sure how to go forward with your Christian faith because you've had some people in your family that really haven't helped you to mature in your faith with Jesus Christ. Or maybe, maybe you do believe, but you're still like, I can't quite piece all this together. Why do Christians get so fired up about this day? Why is the resurrection so important? Why is Jesus that much more important than Muhammad or Joseph Smith or L. Ron Hubbard that we see the Scientology stuff going on downtown Clearwater? Why why do you Christians put Jesus like over here and everybody else over here? I have an answer for that. That's pretty simple. There were two things that Jesus said and did that set him apart from every other spiritual leader in the world. No other spiritual leader, and hear me clearly on this. No other spiritual leader in the world has ever claimed to be God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. And no other spiritual leader in the world ever said, I'm going to lay down my life, and three days later, I'm going to be raised back up to life. No other spiritual leader ever claimed that he was going to die and then be raised back to life. Jesus made both of those incredible claims. And so for just a couple minutes this morning, I would like for us to apply just some common sense to this whole death, burial, and resurrection event. Reader's Digest said a couple years ago, common sense isn't so common. I think that's probably pretty pretty accurate, isn't it? But let's just apply some common sense to to this event. Um, A couple of Monday mornings ago, I got up early, and I was getting out the door and took a shower. And I, I'm low maintenance in the morning. You've got to understand, I'm, I'm one of those people that can get up in five minutes and be out the door in ten minutes. And, you know, I don't do much to the hair. I don't blow dry it. I don't, I don't spray it. I don't gel it. You know, there's nothing wrong with those of you guys that do that. I'm just saying, I, I'm low maintenance. I get out of the shower, and it's wish, 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 and I'm on the clothes, and I'm out the door. Well, that Monday morning, 
I'd already been a couple different very public places. And I'm then driving to where I go study and I go work on sermons all day long on Monday by myself. And I look in the rearview mirror and I look and I kind of the corner of my eye, I thought something's wrong with my hair. What is wrong with my hair? I'm looking in that mirror and I look like I have a terminal disease. There's there's hair every which way. And those of you that are younger, you don't remember the boxing guy, Don King. But my hair, I look like the white guy of Don King with straw blonde hair going every direction. And it, it hit me at that moment. I forgot to rinse out the shampoo. <laughs> and I thought, I've already been there and saw her and saw them and saw him and saw, oh my gosh, they think I'm the village idiot already this morning common sense, you rinse out the shampoo, right? That's not real hard to understand. How many of you in the room will admit that you've ever done that before and gone to a public place? Okay, Dean McSpadden, our business administrator, admitted that. I like that, okay? He's on staff. We're not very smart staff members at Harborside. (laughs) But when it comes to this event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there's just some common sense. Some things just make sense. First of all, Everybody in history agrees to about three things. Christians and non-Christians all agree that there was a historical Jesus. Everybody agrees Jesus was a real person. Second of all, everybody agrees that Jesus died at the hands of the Romans through a cruel Roman cross. Everybody agrees to that. And everybody agrees, Christians and non-Christians, everyone agrees that the cross was empty. Now, that's fascinating to me. When everybody in the world, Christians and non-Christians, they all agree that the cross was empty, that the tomb was empty, rather. The tomb was empty. Now, they don't all agree what happened, right? Not everybody agrees that Jesus rose from the dead, but everybody agrees that the tomb was empty. In, in Luke chapter 24, I just want to read a couple of verses out of Luke 24. It says, on the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Everybody agrees on three events. Number one, he was historical. Number two, he died at the hands of the Romans on a cross. And number three, the tomb was empty. So what happened? So I want to talk with those of you for just a minute that maybe not are part of the church, you've not been a part of church for a while. I want to try to, with just some common sense, I want to try to answer what happened if the tomb was empty and and if he didn't rise from the dead, which I firmly believe, and most of us in the room believe that, if he didn't rise from the dead, then what in the world happened? Where did he go? How can we have a reasonable explanation for this? Well, the very first thing that people try to talk, talk about is what's called the stolen body theory, that, that the body of Jesus perhaps was stolen, and that it was maybe the very disciples themselves who stole that body. Matthew chapter 28, I want to read a couple of verses out of Matthew chapter 28, start with verse 11. It says, while the women were on their way, Some of the guards went into the city and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Verse 12 says, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, 
His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. I'll give you this report. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and we'll keep you out of trouble. The Bible says, so the soldiers took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now let's talk about that for just a minute. Why would the disciples ever steal the body? And what had to happen for, for them to steal the body? Well, first of all, the disciples would have to overpower these guards. And the Roman guards, if they were asleep, it was execution, so they, they, weren't, they weren't sleeping. And what did they do? Did these disciples who were scared to death, who went and hid, and hid behind locked doors, did they overpower these, these guards? Did they move away a 4,000-pound stone? Did they go into a very dark uh, tomb and, and unwrap the, bo- the, the, the shroud that Jesus is in and then neatly place it? The Bible says it was folded in place. And, and the whole thing about the disciples, I mean, what happened? If you don't think he rose from the grave, do you think the disciples, when they ran like little girls that night, do you think that suddenly a couple hours later they would have the courage to go back and to do this? That's one thought. One theory is, we know the tomb was empty. Maybe, maybe the disciples stole the body. The second theory is called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is kind of an interesting theory. Uh, I was getting gasoline at our little shell station right up there by our house. And uh, a friend of mine was there. and She was getting gas across from me. And I know her husband. I know her two kids. And I've invited her to church a couple times. And I was about a year ago, inviting her to come to church. And she said, Kurt, I, I don't believe in Jesus like you do. And I said, okay. I said, tell me what that means. And we're friends and, and I'm not going to lose the relationship. I'm not going to try to win an argument and lose the relationship. I've done that in the past. I've won arguments and lost relationships. And I've learned you keep the relationship and it's okay if you don't have all the answers that you give somebody at that time. And so I, I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I, I don't think Jesus ever died. I said, Really? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I think when they put him in the tomb that maybe his body kind of revived. And I pushed her just a little bit. We'd finished gas, paid the credit card. Everything was good. And I said, well, do do you really think that somebody could, like, be viciously beaten and then, like, physically scourged and they could have their hands nailed and their feet nailed to a cross and they could be on that cross suffocating for six hours, their bodies being filled with carbon dioxide. They're actually poisoning all of the, the bloodstream. D- do you think somebody could do that? And then they're wrapped airtight with, with grave clothes. They could go into a grave and, 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 and come back alive. And she said, yeah, it doesn't make much sense, does it? It's just what I've been taught. It's just what I've been taught. Now you think about this. For Jesus to push away the 4,000-pound stone, for Jesus to overpower these, these, these guards, for Jesus to do all that, the, the, the idea that he never died just doesn't make a whole lot of good sense, does it? There's a third theory, and it's called the hallucination theory. And the hallucination theory is, is also a really good one, and, and it's that maybe, you know, people were hallucinating. Maybe one or two people thought they saw Jesus, And this is kind of like maybe a lady who's been married for 50 years, and she actually liked her husband. She had a good marriage, and she liked her husband, and she really missed her husband. And so over the years, you know, they they grew close, and he died. So, So she maybe hallucinates that she sees him in the living room. 
You know, George has been dead for a couple weeks, but, but Mildred sees George in the room. And she's overwhelmed. That's called the hallucination theory. Does that happen? Probably. Probably the power of the mind is so strong. The power of the mind has, has persuasive thoughts and ideas sometimes. But this story about the hallucination story, everybody saw Jesus very healthy. Nobody saw Jesus like unhealthy. And if you think about it, the vicious beatings, you know, all the, the, the time that he, he, he'd been on the cross, everybody saw Jesus as healthy. I have a really good friend of mine named Lloyd. And Lloyd's an Indiana farmer. They're all farmers from Indiana. And he does agriculture and he does horticulture. And I don't get to see Lloyd that much. He's, uh, he and I, we see each other maybe once a year. And so last year, he turned 50, and so we went to the Keys. And so his family and our family, we took my boat, and we loaded up, and we went down to the Keys and spent a week down in the Keys. And um, we went out fishing one day, got out about 25 miles. And I told you a little bit about that story. It was the storm of my life. I was really worried. I knew Danita would be really mad if Emily drowned, so I got us back safe and sound. But, but we got back in, and you know, that was a tumultuous experience. Then, just about three weeks ago, he was back visiting. And he really wanted to go out, and I've been talking about Amberjack. And so I've got a friend of mine from our church, Alan Poulton. has got a little bit bigger boat, 32-foot boat. So we went out 50 miles. It was a bad day. We shouldn't have gone. Five- and six-foot swells. The ocean that day, the gulf, was like an agitator in the washing machine. There was no pattern. It was just rough. So we get out there, and we start catching some amberjack, and he gets sick. And he starts, you know, throwing up. He sounds like Jurassic Park, you know, at the front of the boat over here. And he's sick, and we're catching fish. We're not coming in. And so we're 50 miles out, and we are, he is so, so sick, and he is white as some of your blouses and dresses, and he's just about to pass out. And so, I, well, all right, we'll, we'll come back in. And so we get back on the shore, and um, I mean, for three days, my friend is just, he's hunched over. He can barely walk. He hasn't eaten in about three days. And so three days after this, we decided that we're going to get in our boat and just kind of go over to a little island, go about 300 yards. And he said, if you think I'm ever getting in a boat with you again, he said, there's no way under heaven and hell I'm getting in a boat with you. He still didn't look good after three days. You think about Jesus. He went to the cross. He had a crown of thorns on his head. He had Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders slap him, punch him, spit on him. He had nails through his hands. He had nails through his feet. He's on a cross for six hours, basically suffocating. And everybody then who saw Jesus, they saw a healthy, not a a person who's trying to recover, not the swoon theory. They're not hallucinating. They were skeptical and they see the resurrected Christ. It's an amazing story. Jesus then begins to appear to to Mary and to Salome. And he begins to appear to Peter. And he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he appears to seven disciples. They were fishing by the Sea of Galilee. He comes into a locked room and he shows up. And the disciples were like, oh my goodness. And Thomas wasn't there. He comes a week later. Thomas is there. Jesus says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. 
Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Just apply some common sense to the empty tomb. The disciples steal the body? They had no motive. They had no reason to. They were skeptical. They thought their Savior had died. Do you think Jesus could push away this slab and overcome the guards and cast off all his mummy burial clothes? Of course not. And then the last one is called the, the relocation theory. Perhaps they just relocated the body. And that one doesn't make any sense at all because all the Jews would have done or all the Roman authorities would have done is just exhumed his body if they, if they moved it somewhere else and just paraded Jesus' dead body up and down Main Street. And so what happened? Everybody agrees there was a historical Jesus. And everybody agrees that he died on a cross by the hands of the Romans. And everybody agrees that the tomb was empty. What do you think happened? Just use some good old-fashioned common sense. Let me tell you what happened. Before the foundation of the world was ever created, God had in mind to send a Savior to this world to save you and to save me from our sins. You see, God sent Jesus into this world who would give up his life in order to save yours. This is what happened. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is exactly what happened. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And here's Paul. He was a blasphemer. Paul was in charge of putting people to death. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. And by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. And here's what he's getting ready to say. For what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, I love that verse. I mean, just think about this. If they relocated the body, or if they stole the body, or if Jesus was still dead, there were people who were still alive who could say, wait a minute, we didn't see him. He wasn't around. But the Bible says there were people who were still living who could testify, we've seen Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus made 40 days of post-resurrection appearances. And in verse 7, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Jesus Christ came into this world to lay down his life, to shed his blood so that you and I could be cleansed and could be free from our sins. I want to show you a picture of uh, the man who founded Temple University. This is um, Russell Conwell, and you can see Russell Conwell lived from 1843 to 1925. And just leave this up for just a second, because I, I want to talk about Russell for just a minute. Russell was a lawyer. For 15 years, uh, Russell Conwell was a lawyer. And while he was practicing law, there were all these young men who were great young men who really wanted to become preachers. But they didn't have any money, and they couldn't get an education. And so Russell Conwell then, for the first 15 years of his life, he was a lawyer. In the last 40 years of his professional life, he, he became a pastor. 
and he founded Temple University in Philadelphia. And he raised $6 million to establish this school. And 1,674 young men were, were trained for the ministry while he was still alive. Many more after that. And Russell Conwell raised the $6 million for Temple University and for all these young preacher boys to go to college by doing one simple thing. He told a true story. He told a true story called Acres of Diamonds. And he put it into a book, he sold the book, and everywhere he went, he charged to make these speeches, and he told this true story about an old farmer. And this old farmer had an old plow, and had an old oxen, had an old mule, old farm, old barn house. He didn't say old wife, but he had a wife, and he had two kids. And, and, and the old farmer was always intrigued by diamonds, because the priest who would visit about every three months his little parish, the priest would make his little rounds and come and visit the little different farmers. The priest used to be a jeweler. And the priest would always talk about, you know, diamonds. And so this old farmer was just so excited about diamonds, he, he couldn't hardly sleep every time the priest would come. And so finally the priest came back about three or four months again, making this circuit. And uh, the old farmer said, tell me. Where can I find diamonds? Where can I go and get diamonds? And the old priest said, oh, that's easy. You start in India, then you go over to Germany, and you you end in Spain. He said, I guarantee you, you'll find diamonds in India. You'll find diamonds in Germany. You'll find diamonds in Spain. Well, the old farmer got excited. The old farmer, he couldn't sleep again. He tells his wife, I'm selling everything. I'm looking for diamonds. He did. Sold his old mule, his old uh, oxen old farmhouse, his his, um, barn. He sells everything, gives her some of the money. She moves in with some of her family, and he takes off on a journey. He takes off, true story, looking for diamonds. He goes for the first year to the first country, finds no diamonds whatsoever. Goes to the second country, he's dirt poor, running out of money. Goes to Barcelona, Spain. Now destitute, suicidal, sees the surf of the wave, true story, and he jumps in and he drowns and he takes his own life. Meanwhile, the guy who bought his farm is out plowing one day. And he finds this black rock in the soil. It's got the colors of the rainbow. It's beautiful black rock. And the old farmer just sticks it in his overall pants pocket, finishes plowing for the day. When the day was over, he's going to take his little spit bath. He puts the old rock up on top of the fireplace mantle. About a month later, the, the, the priest comes to visit the new farmer for the very first time. He wants to meet the new farmer, wants the new farmer to come to his little parish. And so they talk for a while, they visit in the living room, they have a prayer, and the old priest looks up at the fireplace mantle and he said, where did you get that? He said, that's a diamond. And the old farmer said, that's not a diamond, just some black rock I found out in the field. He said, I used to be a jeweler, that's a diamond, where did you find them? So the priest, the old priest and the new farmer, they go out in the field and they begin with shovels and plows to unearth some of the fields, and they find diamonds everywhere. Diamonds everywhere. Everywhere in the field. Everywhere in the acreage. And it became known as the Kimberly Diamond Mine. The largest diamond mine extraction in the world. 
And they were right under the old farmer's feet all along. Do you know the gem that we have in Jesus Christ? Do you know what we have in Christ? Christ alone is our firm foundation. And Jesus Christ has saved us. And we have incredible freedom because of Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, you and I, we've been freed from everything that we're afraid of. Everything that's gone wrong. Everything that's gone bad. Because when we accept Christ, Christ then becomes our all in all. We get forgiveness of our sins. All of your fears. You get freedom from your fears. Freedom from shame. Freedom from guilt. You you get freedom from all the, the things that you don't want to think about. You get freed from your past. And you get freed for purpose and freed for a life. And Jesus Christ is within you. He is here. He is at your grasp and you can grab a hold of him. Do you realize what you have today? Do you realize when you live in history? You and I don't live in the old covenant. We're not going up to the temple or the synagogue and slitting the throats of bulls and goats. We're not trying to just earn God's righteousness for the day. We have Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We live in the greatest time in all of history. And we have an opportunity today to to fulfill the calling that God has for the church age. And we live in the church age. This is an incredible time of our lives. Do we realize what we have? We have the church. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God. We have the peace of God. We have the purpose of God. What you and I possess today is absolutely unbelievable.